So welcome everyone to the third week of this series on the questions of, on tough questions, questions that you may have about the reasons why Christians believe what they do, uh, questions that your friends and colleagues may have. Uh, for those of you who may be here for the first time, uh, my name is Mike Strauss. I'm a uh, physicist at the University of Oklahoma. Um, I'm one of the three people participating in leading this tonight. Uh, some of the questions over the, we're going to uh, talk about 12 questions over the next eight sessions in 10 weeks. Uh, two weeks we'll have off, and those are questions like the question tonight, does God exist? Uh, questions like, is the Bible reliable? Um, why should we believe in miracles? If there's a God, why is there pain and suffering in the world? And these are questions that I know I have as a Christian, and lots, lots of other people have as well. So with that in mind, we might ask the question, um, who is this class for? And the class is for those who have these kinds of questions. Um, whether you're a Christian and already have beliefs and just want solid, more solid evidence for why you believe what you believe, or you have questions about certain things that whether or not you should believe them, um, or if you're not someone who believes in Christ and you're saying, uh, why would I even want to investigate the claims of Christianity? Isn't this just based on blind faith or something? And the, the real answer is it's not. We'll talk about that more tonight. But Christianity is always based on evidence. There are reasons why we believe what we believe. And we'll talk about that as we go. Um, in fact, uh, Christianity is always evidentially based. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.20 to test everything and hold on to what is good. That doesn't sound like blind faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about the fact that if Christ did not rise from the dead, if that's not a fact, if we don't have evidence for it, then our faith is in vain and we should be pitied. And over and over again, um, people who think and ask tough questions and search for themselves are praised in the Bible. Uh, this people from the city of Berea were, were praised because they didn't just believe what they were taught by Paul, but they went and checked it out for themselves. And so there are good reasons for what we believe, and we're going to investigate that tonight. Um, you may want to be able to answer questions that your friends or colleagues have, and hopefully we will give you tools to do so as we go through tonight. Um, I kind of want to first talk a little bit to those who... Um, want to develop the tools to um, share these principles with other people. Because there are certain ways that we should think about sharing these principles with other people and ways that are productive and ways that are not so productive. And so I want to spend maybe the first part of tonight kind of laying some groundwork for what the next eight sessions will be about and what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it. And the theme verse for this is... Um, here in 1 Peter 3.15, this says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so what does this verse tell us that we should be doing as we think about sharing these principles with others? Well, the first thing is that there are three things we need to prepare. The first thing is to prepare your heart. The verse says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. What does sanctify mean? Sanctify means to set apart, to put Christ first in your heart. 
This is not about you. It's not about everything that you know and have now learned and can regurgitate to someone else. This is about um, introducing people to Christ and putting him first. It's not about how smart you sound, how much knowledge you have. It's about uh, putting Christ first, setting him apart first in your heart. So prepare your heart. Um, if you have, like many of us, you know, struggle with pride once you know the answer to something, talk to God about that. You know, this is not about what we know. And the second thing is prepare your answer. We're going to talk about 12 different questions. Some of the questions I mentioned earlier. Is the Bible reliable? And these are the questions that people tend to have most. Is Jesus the only way to God? If so, why? That seems very narrow. And so what we're going to do over the next eight weeks is give you some good answers to these 12 questions that people might have about why Christians believe what they do. Now, we're not going to give you, you know, such solid um, arguments that you can just argue someone to change their mind. That's not the goal. We're not trying to prove Christianity. We're trying to give reasonable answers to reasonable questions. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15 says that you may give an account to those who ask about the hope in you. This is so you can tell people why you believe what you believe. It's not to win an argument with them. It's to give a reasonable answer to the tough questions that Christianity and life bring up in general. So we're not going to try to, you know, give you such solid rock evident, rock solid proof that you can argue someone and change their mind. That's not the goal. The goal is to give you reasonable answers to reasonable questions. And then the third thing it says is to look at your attitude. It says, but do so. Answer these questions. How? With gentleness and reverence or gentleness and respect. The goal is to show respect for other people. Um, the purpose of this is not to win arguments. It's to introduce people to Christ, to win people, not arguments. And, you know, I've heard many debates between Christians and non-Christians, or sometimes even between Christians. And you can tell those whose goal is to try to win people to Christ. They are not arrogant. They are not attacking. They show gentleness and respect. And that's our goal, to learn to give an answer, a reasonable answer to reasonable questions with such an attitude that people see a difference in you because you treat them with gentleness and respect. I once gave a talk at OU on scientific evidence for God. I taught a large class of um, pre-medical students. And I kind of shared that I'm a Christian in my class, but not in, a, in, a over, in an overt way necessarily. So I announced to the class that I was going to give a talk um, in a few nights on scientific evidence for God. And one of the best compliments I ever got was a student came up in to me afterwards and she said, I thought that you might be a Christian because of the way you treated us as students. Right? You treat people with gentleness and respect and it shows um, who Christ is. It's attractive um, and that's what we want to do. We want to give you answers, reasonable answers to reasonable questions so that you can share those with people, not in an arrogant way, but to draw them to Christ. Um, humility goes a long way um, in pointing people to Christ because it's not about you, it's about him. What do you have to offer people? What do you have to offer them that really is going to make their life better, make their eternity better? I have little to offer but I can point them to someone who has much to offer, and that's the goal. Now, when discussing things, people will ask questions, 
and they'll ask them in different ways for different reasons. Some just want to present obstacles. They really don't care. Um, I think Jesus might say if you spend too much time talking to them, it's casting pearls before swine. People who really don't care. But treat those people with gentleness and respect. Some people just want to show off. Um, sometimes I'll give a talk on evidence for God from science, and someone comes to the mic to ask question, a question, and for about 10 minutes, they tell me who they are and why they're you know, so educated that their question is extremely valuable. Um, if someone takes 10 minutes to ask a question, they're not really asking a question, right? They're just trying to show off. And, and sometimes you'll get people that ask questions in a way to show off, but others are asking questions sincerely to find answers. Now, how do you treat people who are asking questions just to throw up roadblocks or to show how smart they are? You treat them with gentleness and respect, the same way Christ did. The goal is to build bridges so that people want to know the hope that is in you. And that's what we're trying to do um, as we go through these. Another thing to do when you deal with people is always ask questions. Um, if you go to Wildwood, the, one of the pastors of Wildwood will often use the phrase, questions are your friends. My goal is to draw people to Christ. How can I help someone come to know Christ if I don't know what their issues are, what pains they have, what obstacles they face, and what questions they have? And the only way I'm going to find out is ask questions. It's so easy, particularly if you know some good answers to these 12 questions, to just want to give the answer. But it may not be the question they have. And the way you find out what people are, where people are at is by asking them questions. And so that's something you want to do in all of your conversations. Uh, one more thing I want to share as an opening remark is this verse, uh, this passage from Colossians 4. Because uh, Paul gives us some great advice here about what we should do if we want to present the hope that is in us and how to do that. He says this, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in a way I ought to speak. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Paul says, in our sharing with other people, in a way that we're going to talk to people, in our speech, what should we do first? What's the first thing he says? He says, devote yourself to prayer. And he tells us what we're supposed to do in prayer. First, devote yourself. It's continual. It's persistent. The people that you want to see come to know Christ, you're not going to make a difference in their life. Well, you might make a difference, but you're not ultimately going to bring them to Christ. The Holy Spirit does. And so you want to be persistent praying for them. You want to be alert in your prayer. Be focused. Pray for specific things. In fact, Paul will give us some of those specific things we're to pray for as we go on. And then have a thankful attitude. Um, this is how we pray with, pray with devotion, with alertness with a thankful attitude. And Paul even tells us what to pray for, so you don't have to worry about that. Just follow this. He says, pray for each other. Pray, he says, pray for us. Um, and what does he pray for? That we might have an open door. Now, you probably all have open doors. 
You probably work with people at work who are not believers. You probably have neighbors who are not believers. You probably know lots of people in your family. There are lots of open doors. We just don't see them sometimes. Jesus was sitting at the well talking to a Samaritan woman. His disciples had gone to get some food, and they come back, and they ask Jesus, what's he doing? And he says, look up, lift up your eyes. The fields are ripe. You just don't see it. There are people all around who need to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And there's open doors. And you need to pray for those open doors and pray that you will see them. Pray that you'll lift up your eyes. And then finally, pray for grace to present the message. Paul says we are to present the message um, with our speech, always with grace. Always with grace. Seasoned as it was with salt. Um, I'm not the best cook in the world, but I know one thing. If it doesn't taste good, put salt on it. And so that's what Paul is saying. Your, your speech should be like that. In a culture when salt was even more valuable than it may be today, make your speech such that it's tasteful for people. Um, we're not trying to offend people. We're trying to build bridges to draw them to Christ. We're not trying to argue with people. We're trying to share reasonable answers to reasonable questions. He goes on to say um, that... The reason that we share our faith with others is not so we can put a notch in our belt, not so that we look so great, not so that we can um, let everyone know how smart it is. It's because um, we, have, we know a person who can offer someone else everything. Uh, we know that God loves people. Sometimes I'll be traveling. I travel all over the world. I'll be like at an airport or a train station, and there's you know, a few thousand people. And I, it always amazes me that you see this, what looks like a huge crowd. Watch the Super Bowl on Sunday. There'll be a huge crowd. And they're just, you know, nameless faces. But I'm always amazed that God knows each of those people. He knows their heart. He knows where they hurt. He knows their desires. He knows, you know, their longings. And it's amazing to me that he cares so much that he knows that number of hairs on each of their heads. He loves people. Um, I'm not a people person. My wife is. That's why I married her, because I needed someone to tell me how I should treat people. Right? Um, but if I love God, I should care about what he cares about, and he cares about people. That means listening to people, as we talked about, asking questions, seeing where they're at. Um, Christ uses the example of bringing people to him as as a harvest, he said, lift up your eyes, the harvest is ripe. But a harvest requires sowing and watering and nurturing and finally reaping. And you don't know where you're going to be. I have a friend who says um, that if we have someone over here who doesn't even believe there's a God, and we ultimately would love to see them have a relationship with God, that that's a process. We're all on a journey. And he says that process usually takes about 30 people to move to help someone understand that God loves them and they can have a relationship with him. Not just one person. My friend jokes it takes about 30 people for someone who doesn't believe in God to eventually maybe come to know Christ. 29 people who think they did nothing and one person who thinks they did everything. All right? But this, this 
trite saying or whatever that my friend talks about is change the way I think about my interactions with people. My, my goal is to maybe sow a little seed, cultivate a little bit, maybe have one of my students think that maybe there's something different because I treat them with respect. Um, I remember another story at, uh, when I was in my class at OU is somebody asked me a question. I don't even remember the question. But I said in response to the question that I was a theist, someone who believes in God. I didn't even say I was a Christian. I was a theist. About five years later, a student came up to me and he said, you won't remember me, but you shared in your class once that you were a theist. And he said, that got me thinking. If Dr. Strauss is a theist, and he's a pretty smart guy, which I would debate, but he said he's a pretty smart guy, so maybe I should look into whether or not there's a God. And he said that started me on a journey to eventually become a Christian, to have a relationship with Christ. And I thought to myself, what's the least I could ever do as a Christian? The least I could ever do is tell someone I believe in God. That's all I did. And God used that as uh, planting the seed, sowing a seed that later was cultivated by someone else, that was watered by someone else, that was weeded by someone else, and that was finally harvested. Right? And your job is not just to you know, brings the harvest. Your job is to sow and cultivate. I, I've a, not only am I a bad cook, but I'm a bad gardener too. I have a brown thumb, right? But I know that those who do good gardening, like I'll watch the British Gardening Show or something, right? they treat their plants with such grace and carefulness and, you know, love. And that's how we should be treating people. And then finally, only um, the Holy Spirit brings people to to Christ, not me. I don't have anything to offer. I can point them to someone who does. So that's why I'm praying. That's why I'm devoting myself to prayer. That's why I'm treating people with um, respect and reverence so that it builds bridges for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives and bring them to a knowledge of Jesus, which is the greatest thing, right? We're sitting here because most of you are sitting here because you have a relationship with Jesus and you know that it's the most fulfilling thing in life. And it answers questions, and it brings satisfaction and peace. And you would love those who you care about to have that same peace, satisfaction, relationship with Jesus. So why do people reject Jesus? For lots of reasons. One is just ignorance. They don't know the message. I've heard many stories of someone who will say, I went to such and such a church growing up, and I never heard really what we call the gospel, the good news, who Jesus was and why he came to earth and how I can have relationship with him simply through faith. Uh, some people just don't know or they have the message all garbled. And that's, you can make a difference in that. You can talk to people with gentleness and respect and help them understand what the message really is. Some people um, have emotional reasons. They've been hurt by Christians They've been hurt by the church. It's unfortunate. Christians are, you know, flawed people that have hurt others in what we do sometimes. We need to apologize for that. Um, you know, Nehemiah apologized for his whole nation that had disobeyed God. Um, and we need to tr show people who have been hurt by the church what Christ's love is like. Because he loves them. He's not going to hurt them. And we can help people who've been emotionally scarred by showing them a genuine love and care for who they are. 
Some people don't come to Christ just because of pride. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He's not saying there's no one, no one will go to heaven who's rich. He's saying that, I think he's saying that if you're a self-made person and you don't think you need anyone else, then you're never going to look to God. And so um, there are people who have pride and they don't think they need God. What can you do about that? You can pray because God knows the heart. He works on hearts. And then there are people for moral reasons. I know a guy who shared um, how once in a setting how science points to God, and he had four scientists come up to him. And they all said, you've completely convinced us that science says there's a God. And he said, well, you know, do you want to come to know that God? And they each had a reason that was moral that they didn't. One was having an affair and said, I'd have to give up my affair. I'm not going to do that. Right? Um, and so one of the major reasons people don't want to come to Jesus is because of moral reasons. What can you do about that? You can pray. You can't change their heart. God changes hearts. They don't have to change their behavior to come to Christ. Right? That's the beauty of Christianity. You don't have to be good enough to come to Christ. You have to be willing to submit your life to him. Um, when I was a, in high school, so I have a date here. This will give you some idea of how old I am. Right? So when I was in high school, Josh McDowell, who made much of his career giving reasons for why we believe what we believe, came to my church. And I was a sophomore, so I knew everything at that time. And, uh, and what he said was something like this. This is a paraphrase. Usually the rejection of Christ and the Bible is not so much of the mind, but of the will. And being a, a person who has always been interested in the mind, I've always been a thinker, I kind of thought, well, that's kind of crazy. Because certainly if I can convince somebody's mind of the truth of Christianity, then they're going to become a Christian. And over the course of how many years, I can't even do the math because that's so long ago, right? I've learned that what he said is basically true. You can, that, that's why these answers are not a foolproof way to bring people to Jesus. Because it's not always about the answers. Paul says to have good answers for those questions. But people choose not to come to Jesus, not because there aren't good answers, but because of lots of other factors. And those are factors that only God knows and that we need to pray that God works in their heart. Um, so that's been a long foundation. I've talked almost um, 20 minutes just laying a foundation for what we're going to do over the next eight weeks or eight sessions. But I think it's important. Because this is why we're here. Some of you, you know, this has been, well, you just, I just wasted 20 minutes because you don't care to tell anybody. You're here to get some answers. Right? But for many of you here, you're hoping that this will give you tools to share with people. And, and that's what we want to do, give you tools to share with people. But I, this foundation is so important to understand some of the principles and how to use these tools to point people to Christ, not to us. So let's jump in then, finally, to the question for the evening. The question of, does God exist? And a lot of what we do is taken from the book, I'm glad you asked. There are 12 questions in there, and this is chapter 1. If you have the book um, and you know what the next question is for next week, we'll talk about that. You can read the chapter ahead. Um, so this is kind of a conglomeration of some of the things the chapter says in that book, but also many of the things I've learned over the years. But I'm going to take kind of a systematic approach and look at the three options, because there are really three options to the question, does God exist? 
The first option is atheism, saying, no, God doesn't exist. There is no God. And it's that clear. There are different kinds of atheisms. If you go to the atheist club um, on campus, you can hear their treatise on different kinds of atheism. I'll touch on that briefly. But they all really say there is no God worth believing in, at least. The agnostic will say, I don't know, or sometimes a strong agnostic will say, no one can know if there is a God. Um, agnosticism means just don't know. I, I don't have any idea. Uh, and that's where a lot of people stand, and we'll talk about how to address that. And then finally, theism, which means there is a God. And even among theism, we'd have the question, well, which God? Is it the Muslim God? Is it the Christian God? Is it the Hindu gods? Is it the Buddhism God, which really in classical Buddhism there is no God? Or is it something else? Okay, and we will discuss that a little bit. So I want to kind of go through each of these three worldviews and talk about how you might answer someone who holds these positions and why I think that the last position is really the most reasonable. And remember, we're trying to get the reasonable answer. And we're not trying to get rock-solid proof. There isn't proof of anything. Even in science, there's not proof of anything. The only place you can have absolute proof is in mathematics and in logic. And so I'm not going to do any mathematics because I want you to come back. Uh, but we might do some logic. I don't know. So let's first look at what's called strong atheism or classical atheism. So strong atheism is basically the blanket statement that there is no God. It's that cut and dry. There is no God. And what I've drawn here is this big circle. And let's suppose that big circle is all the knowledge in the universe. And then you might ask somebody, well, out of all the knowledge in the universe, how much knowledge do you have? And that's that little blue dot. Now, that might be being, you know, gracious for someone like myself to make the blue dot that big out of all the knowledge in the universe. But no matter how much knowledge I have, it pales in comparison to the knowledge in the universe. And so the question is, is it possible that if I only know that little blue dot, but everything in the universe is that big circle or oval, is it possible that God exists outside of my knowledge? And of course the answer is yes for all of us. So the strong position that there is no God, period, exclamation point, just is logically impossible because it's logical that you don't know everything, and it's logical that outside of your knowledge, a God might exist. Now, most atheists who have thought through their position understand this, and they'll say they're not a strong atheist, believing that there's absolutely no God at all. So they'll rephrase the atheism in a number of ways. One is more personal. I don't believe there's a God. Or, I don't believe that there's a God as any of the religions propose. But there's a couple problems with those statements. I mean, when you say, I don't believe in God, you're really saying there is no God. If I tell you, I don't believe in unicorns, it's not because I'm saying, well, I just, you know, I don't have any real proof of unicorns. I'm saying, you're crazy if you believe in unicorns. I don't believe them because they don't exist. I don't believe in leprechauns. Why? Because they don't exist, right? It's, it's just another way of trying to soften this, this strong atheism because atheists know you can't logically be a strong atheist. So let's change the wording and make it sound different, but it's really the same statement. I don't believe in God because there is no God. 
Because if there was, I would believe it, right? The other thing is, well, I don't believe in any of the proposed gods of any religions. Well, how many religions are there in the world? And how many proposed? There's a, a variety of any god you can think of in some religion in the world. And so by saying this, you're saying out of everything 7.7 billion people have thought of, none of them have it right when it comes to God. Isn't that really just the same as saying there is no God? And so all of these are just restatements to try to soften what an atheist knows is a ridiculous position, strong atheism, but ultimately they're still strong atheist positions. They're untenable to say that there is no God um, because we don't know everything. Um, the, another one that I love is atheists will try to talk to you about the fact that your belief is ridiculous. And they'll say, well, you as a Christian believe there's one God. But how many proposed gods are there in the world? There's millions of proposed gods. And you as a Christian have thrown out all the other gods and said they're false, but you believe in one. So they say, that seems kind of crazy, and I just believe in one less than you. So if you've thrown out a million, and they've thrown out a million and one, isn't that really just the same? But, but in, in reality, that's kind of a ridiculous claim, and let me give you some reasons. First of all, if you look at the proposed gods of the world's religions, they're very, very different. They contradict each other. The Muslim God only loves you if you love Allah, the Muslim God. The Christian God loves you regardless. They can't both be true. If, the, if God doesn't love you unless you love him, then he can't love everybody. So if the Muslim God is correct, the Christian God is wrong. Right? I'm not throwing out a million gods because I'm arbitrary. I'm throwing out a million gods because they contradict this view of God. There's many, many gods in Hinduism. There's one God in Christianity. They can't both be true. In pantheism, the universe is God. In Christianity, the universe was created by God. The reason I've thrown out a million and one or a million gods is because I can think logically. Because two things that contradict each other can't both be true. And so therefore, I can't believe in all the other gods. Because if I believe in the Muslim God, I can't believe in the Christian God. They're diametrically opposed. But also the whole thing is irrelevant. If there's one true God, then of course you're going to throw out a million gods. I, I travel all over the world, and if you go into my uh, dresser drawer, you'll find a bunch of plastic bags. One has British pounds in it, one has euros in it, one has Swiss francs in it, because I need all these currencies. And if I come to the U.S. and I go to Walmart and I give them Swiss francs, will they take them? No. They'll take one kind of money. Why? Because the rest are not worth anything. Now, if someone says, well, I just use one less kind of money than you, I'll say, well, then you don't have any money in the U.S. Right? And I've thrown out all the other currencies of the world. When I come to the U.S., I use only dollars. And someone who says, well, that's kind of ridiculous, and I'm better than you because I just don't use any money because I have none, right? I'm broke. And so it does matter that there is one true God. And saying that you've thrown out a million is just a, a crazy statement. It doesn't mean anything. The real question is, is there one true God? Out of all the million of possibilities, is there one that's true? And if so, who is it and how do you know? Right? And then finally, I hear this all the time, I don't have to refute something that I, there's no evidence for. 
Richard Dawkins will say, well, I don't make a big refutation of fairies because we know fairies don't exist. There's no evidence for them. Why would I refute something there's no evidence for? So why should I refute God? The implication is there's no evidence for God. The problem is there's plenty of evidence for God. And so putting your head in the sand and saying there's no evidence is not the same as actually confronting the evidence. So that's some ideas um, for atheism. Another one is if there is no creator, if there's no God, there's no logical basis for values or meaning. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that atheists, people who don't believe in God, can't be moral and they can't have purses, purpose. What I'm saying is there's no basis for morality. Morality becomes simply what I think is right or maybe what the majority thinks is right. But these are poor bases for morality. If there's no God who sets the standards for what's right and wrong, then who sets the standards? Every individual. So if I think mass murder is okay, I set the standard. Is that fine? What about the majority? So if we lived in Nazi Germany, the majority thought that killing Jews was okay. At least the majority in power. Does that make it right? No. If you try to define morality by any standard other than objective God, you get into problems. Because it becomes simply subjective. And if culture changes, morality changes. If culture thinks it's okay, you know, to kill infants, then it becomes okay. If there is no God who sets ultimate standards of what's right and wrong. The Holocaust becomes just a distasteful event. Not something that, you know, is morally reprehensible. Because everybody gets to decide what's right and wrong unless there's an absolute standard. Um, suppose you were to take a test in my class and you got all the answers right and I gave you an F. And I said, you came to me and go, everything's right, why did I get an F? And I said, because you used blue ink and I just don't like blue ink. If you had done it in black ink, I would have given you, you know, 100%. And you go, well, that's not right. And I said, why? Who sets the standard of what's right and wrong? I don't like blue ink. Why should I give you, right? And you would go, that's not fair. And we all know it's not fair. Because the standards are not set by what any individual thinks or what the majority thinks. If so, there are no standards. And so there's no basis for morality. But we all have morality. We all live our lives as if there is morality, as if there is purpose. Right? We all cringe when we see people who get away with whatever. Because we know there's a morality. And so atheists, atheists can live moral lives. They can do what's right and wrong. But logically, there's no basis. It all becomes subjective. And if you want to tell me that, you know, cheating on your exams is wrong, I would say there's no basis for that if there's no external lawgiver. So ultimately, atheism is not the most reasonable alternative. It's got logical flaws. Nobody lives as if there's no, no morality. I remember talking to a philosopher once who thought there is no God, and I said this to him. I said, so, you know, ultimately, if there's no God, there's no basis for morality. Do you believe that? He says, yes, I do, but my wife won't let me live that way. Right? Nobody lives that way. So maybe if you can't live that way, it's because it's not true. All right? Um, so what about agnosticism? Agnosticism says we just can't know if there's a God. 
What they're saying is we can't, there's not enough evidence. Well, we're going to talk a lot about evidence. This evidence, again, is not proof. You can't prove God scientifically or mathematically. If you've ever sat on a jury, you can't prove something on a jury. I've sat on a few juries, and in a uh, trial, the goal is to find the, what the preponderance of evidence suggests or what the um, you know, evidence suggests. The judge will tell you, we can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt or beyond any doubt what, what, the, what happened. You prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's plenty of evidence that shows beyond a reasonable doubt that there is a God. It's not evidence that's insurmountable, but it's, it's plenty of evidence. It's this kind of legal evidence, like what you would build a case for in court. Or it's historical evidence, or, or stuff like that. It's not the same kind of mathematical proof, but this is how you live your life all the time. You live your life on what's probable, not what's possible. You're all going to get in your cars today, and you're, tonight, and you're going to drive home. It's, it's possible that the guy coming towards you in the opposite lane has had too much to drink, is going to swerve into your lane and kill you. But that's not going to keep you driving from driving home. Because it's unlikely. Fortunately, most people have got the message not to drink and drive. So it's not super probable that that's going to happen. So you don't live your life based on these possibilities. You base your life on reasonable probabilities. It's possible, my wife hates me when I say this, it's possible that my wife really doesn't like me and she's been poisoning my dinner every night. Okay? Actually, she has the stomach flu, so maybe I've been poisoning her dinner. Who knows, right? But it's really not probable. It's very unreasonable given everything else, that, the way she treats me. And so I don't live my life with that paranoia. And this is how we live. Maybe unless you play the lottery, then you live your life based on possibility. But mostly we live based on probability. And so what's the probability given the evidence? And how do people treat the evidence? Well, the evidence isn't accepted by everybody. Jesus tells the story of Lazarus who goes to hell, and he's in torment. And he says to Abraham, please, I don't want my family to have to come to hell. Let me just go and tell them this place is real so they won't come here. And what Abraham says to, to the rich man, sorry, I said Lazarus, but Abraham says to this rich man who was rich when he was alive is, um, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't believe the evidence I've given them, they won't believe it even if someone comes back from the dead. And there are people who can see all the evidence and they're going to be like the rich man's relatives. Even if some, this amazing thing was to happen, they're just not going to believe it. What do you do with people like that? You pray that God changes their hearts because you can't change hearts. There's going to be others. Um, the other thing about the evidence is it's available to everyone. We've quoted this verse a few times in the last week. It says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Everyone can see this evidence. And so let's talk about some of the evidence um, for the existence of, of a God. The first, question, the first evidence we've talked about the last couple weeks is the universe itself. Where did the universe come from? And there's only three possibilities. Either the universe is eternal, or the universe came from nothing, or the universe was caused by something else that existed beforehand, and ultimately something that's eternal. Now, until the 100 years ago, most people held view one, that the universe was eternal. But as the evidence has become more overwhelming, people tend not to believe that anymore. The idea that the universe itself is born from nothing is actually an idea that some physicists hold in the 21st century. 
Um, but I'll talk about in a little while well, that's why that is unreasonable. And then the other option is the universe came from something or someone that's eternal. Now, we talked a little bit last week about this evidence. There's evidence that the universe had a beginning. The universe is expanding. If it's expanding, it must have started to expand. We can measure what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is the leftover heat from the origin of our universe. The universe started out really, really hot, and we can actually see that heat now from when the universe was hot. We can measure the light elements in the universe, the amount of hydrogen and helium. These observations are so powerful to scientists that they convince them the universe had a beginning 14 billion years ago, even though that is an idea that most scientists really dislike because if the universe had a beginning, it might have had a beginner. Nevertheless, they hold to that beginning. They, they actually, those who don't hold to, that the universe had a beginning, look at what we don't know, the first ten, trillionth of a trillionth of a second to try to get out of the beginning, because everything since that first trillionth of a trillionth of a second looks like a real beginning. Um, we have theoretical calculations. Now, th what do I mean by that? There are certain things about physics that we know that we know how the universe works. And if we extrapolate what we know all the way back to the beginning, everything we know says the universe had a real beginning. Now, those who don't like this say it's unreasonable to extrapolate everything we know all the way to the beginning because when you get really, really close to the beginning, maybe the things we know don't work anymore. And they're right. It's possible that maybe the things we know don't work anymore when you get really close to the beginning. By close, I mean a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. But on the other hand, all I can do is look at what I do know. And everything we know about physics points to an actual beginning. There's something called the second law of thermodynamics. You guys have all experienced this. The second law of thermodynamics says that everything tends to go, in lay people's terms, it says that everything tends to go from order to disorder. If you've ever had your teenager clean up their room, you know this principle is true. It goes from order to disorder, right? And two days later, it's completely disordered. Well, the Big Bang itself, although it's sometimes called an explosion, was not an explosion. The entropy, which is the scientific word for how ordered things are, was the, high, was, was the lowest at the Big Bang. In other words, it wasn't this random chaotic explosion. It was an ordered event, and no physicist can figure out why. Every single proposal as to how the universe came into existence, with almost no exception, struggles with this entropy problem. The universe was born massively ordered, not massively disordered. Roger Penrose, who's a theoretical physicist, has calculated this fine-tuning to be one part in 10 to the 10th to the 123rd power. Um, I mean, that's just like impossible number. That's many more than the total number of particles in the whole universe. And so um, no one knows how the universe became so ordered and that it had a beginning. Um, so it's not reasonable to say that the universe is eternal. And if the universe had a beginning, then something or someone must have caused the universe. As I said last week, to me... This is the strongest evidence for the existence of God other than the resurrection of Jesus. If this entire universe came into existence, then something external 
had to start the entire universe. Now, scientists, again, come up with ideas, and here are a couple of them. One is that, well, maybe the laws of physics are eternal. But laws of physics don't do anything. They describe the universe. If I write down, I think I said this previously, if I write down the laws that describe how this building is built and how the structure is held together and all the forces on the columns, that doesn't build the building. It takes someone who's got the power and the will and the tools to actually do the building. And the laws of physics describe things. They don't prescribe things. And so where do they come from? In fact, physicists who are um, really open and thinking about this will say this. Stephen Hawking says this. A guy named um, Alexander Vilenkin says this. Even if the laws describe the universe, if you want to try to attribute the universe's existence to the laws, where would they come from? Who prescribed those? The other thing I hear a lot is, is the atheists will say, well, you want to propose that there's an eternal God. How is that just different than saying some physical thing is eternal? Another universe spawned ours, or previous universes spawned ours. And I'll tell you the difference. So if you're, if you're a philosophical naturalist, that, which means you believe only natural causes occur, so our universe became into existence from some natural cause, then you also believe in cause and effect. So what caused the cause of our universe? And what caused that? And what caused that? And you have this infinite regression of causes which presents a problem. But some people say, oh, our universe just came from nothing. Lawrence Krauss, a physicist at Arizona State, wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing. And he proposes the universe popped into existence from nothing. But here's the problem. Lawrence Krauss is a naturalist. If I told him this you know, chair here just popped into existence from nothing. He would say, well, that's crazy because everything in natural, the natural world has a cause. But, he's, but what he claims is, but we don't know how the universe came into existence. But if I claimed anything else just came into existence from nothing, you know, I would no longer have my position at OU despite the fact that I'm tenured. They would kick me out. Right? But some people want to claim that the universe came from nothing. So here's the idea. If I only believe in natural causes, either there's this infinite number of causes, which is crazy, or the universe came from nothing, which is crazy. So what do people who believe in God say? They say, you know what? It it's really doesn't make sense to have an infinite number of causes in a materialistic worldview. If I believe materialism, cause and effect is all there is, then something can't come from nothing. I can't have an infinite set of causes. So I don't believe that. I don't believe that the natural world is all there is. I believe there's something different than the natural world, an eternal God who isn't bound by cause and effect, who it's not crazy to say he just existed because he's not an effect. He is the cause. He's the ultimate cause. And so if I believe in naturalism, I'm shooting myself in the foot to say that it came from nothing or there's this infinite series of causes. The only way out of that is to not believe in naturalism. To propose that there's a supernatural, a spiritual realm, a being who is self-existent that is different from the natural world. And that's what theists do. It's the most logical explanation. Saying that where did God come from is a nonsense statement. Saying where did the chair come from, where the universe came from, is not a nonsense statement because I believe in a series of natural causes. But to say there's something that isn't natural, that doesn't need a cause, is an entirely different proposition. And that's what theists say. 
Um, the, so that's called the cosmological argument that the universe had a beginning and it seems to point to a beginner. It's a strong argument. The um, non-theist physicists struggle with it because it's very powerful. The next argument is sometimes called the teleological argument. It basically says the universe is designed and it looks designed. The universe looks rational and predictable. Modern science was developed in the Western world because the Western world was steeped in Christianity, believing that a rational, predictable God made the universe. The universe is described by mathematics, just like a design building. It seems to have a designer. It's amazing. And then finally, much of the universe is finely tuned. Um, it's as if you have a control panel with a hundred knobs that describes the universe, that, that tunes like the strength of the strong nuclear force or the mass of a proton. And if you were to change any knob just a little bit, it would produce a universe that's inhospitable to life. Let me just briefly go through some of these. First, the fact that the universe is rational. Isaac Newton, maybe the premier scientist of all time, says the most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as the Lord over all. In other words, how does the universe work? It's because it comes from an intelligent, rational, powerful being. Therefore, it's intelligent and rational, and we can understand it. The universe is described by mathematics. Eugene Wigner, a theoretical physicist, said the miracle, I love that word from a, a naturalist, the miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. Physicists say we don't understand anything about the universe till we can write a mathematical equation that describes it. That's why most people don't want to be physicists because they don't want to have to deal with the language of mathematics. But this is what describes the universe. And it's beautiful and it's a miracle and it's a gift we don't understand. But it works. It looks like a designer who designed it with this beautiful thing of mathematics. There are so many things in the universe that are finely tuned to um, produce a universe at all, life as we know it. Um, the strong nuclear force is precisely tuned. It gives us the periodic table. If I was to change it by make it 5% weaker, we wouldn't have any hydrogen and there'd be no water or, or stars like our sun. If I was to make it 5% um, stronger, it would, we'd only have hydrogen. Um, there's so many parameters, I, I won't go through these. Um, the stability of stars, in order for stars to burn brightly and stably like our sun, You've got to have this exact relationship between the strength of electricity and the strength of gravity. It's this complicated mathematical formula that um, is amazing and that scientists wonder where this came from. Uh, in, inside every proton in your body are things called virtual particles. Particles that pop into existence for a moment and then go away. They live for a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. And it turns out that if these particles weren't popping into existence and going away, then it would change the mass of the proton, which would change the viability for life, and we wouldn't be here. Can you imagine God sitting in heaven, designing the universe, and going, hmm, let's build protons that have these particles inside them that pop into existence for a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second and go away, and let's make the universe not work if those things aren't there. Right? That's the universe you live in. It's pretty remarkable. And there's, you know, a hundred of these specific life 
um, necessary characteristics. There have been books and papers um, written on them. They're peer-reviewed. This isn't some crazy idea. The universe looks as if it's designed. Alan Sandage was an astronomer who was an atheist and became a Christian because of this amazing design in the universe. He says, I find it quite improbable that such order came out of chaos. There has to be some organizing principle. God to me is a mystery, but is the explanation for the miracle of existence. Why there is something instead of nothing. The cosmological arg argument says the universe had a beginning. The teleological argument says the universe looks like it has a designer. And then finally, the moral argument says that humans have a moral idea of what's right and wrong. We have an internal idea of what we ought to do. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis gives this example. He says, suppose you're walking along and you hear a man cry for help. And it's in a dangerous situation. Maybe there's a house on fire. And there's a part of you that says, um, your instinct that says, I should go help that man. And there's another part of you, an instinct that says, that would put me in danger. I can't go help him. And then C.S. Lewis says, but amazingly, there's a third part of you that says, what ought you to do? What's the right thing to do? Where does that third part come from? It's not self-preservation. It's not a species preservation. It's a deep internalization that there's a right and a wrong that all cultures have. And all cultures have basically the same ideas of what we ought to do. I even heard once, I, said, I was talking to a missionary, I said, well, you live in a cannibalistic society. In a cannibalistic society, they kill people and eat them. How can they have any concept of murder? He says, oh, they have a strong concept of murder. Murder is killing anyone in your clan. And it's totally wrong. Because murder is wrong. We have this deep sense of right and wrong that we share with all humanity. Where does that come from? Where does the idea that I ought to do something, even though everything else in my gut says I shouldn't do it? The atoms we're made of don't have morality. No other animals have morality. I joked last week, the lion doesn't sit down and, you know, fret over the humane way to kill the antelope because he has this moral sense of what he ought to do. Where does it come from if not the physical? It comes from the fact that we're made in the image of God, that we are moral creatures. We're the only creatures with morality. And it's not made of It's not because we're made of atoms. The atoms don't care. It's because there's more than that. So ultimately, there's a lot of evidence for God. To be agnostic is to some sense ignore the evidence. The origin of the universe, the cosmological argument says the universe had a beginning. It must have had a beginner. The design in the universe says the universe looks like it was designed. It must have had a designer. And morality in the universe says that this moral creature of us can't come from just the physical. Because morality doesn't come from the physical. So let's ask the, answer the last question very briefly. If then we come to the conclusion that there is a God, what God? Is it the Muslim God? Is it the Hindu gods? Is it the pantheistic God? Is it the Christian God? And when we look at what we know, it stacks up to look like the Christian God. The origin of space suggests that God is outside of space. He's transcendent. He's not part of the universe. It rules out pantheism. The origin of time suggests that God is eternal. Because time had to have a beginning. The origin of matter and energy suggests that whoever created this universe isn't made of matter and energy. What we would call spirit. 
He's something separate from matter and energy. The design in the universe suggests that the creator is intelligent. The laws of physics suggest that God is creative. Who would ever come up with virtual particles or quantum mechanics, which I also study? The size and scope of the universe, 95 billion light years in size, is all we can see. And it probably goes on much, much farther than that. Suggests that God is powerful. The anthropic principle, the idea that the universe is fine-tuned for life like us, suggests God cares about humanity. The existence of personal beings suggests God is personal. Where does personality come from? It's not my atoms again. The moral law suggests God is a moral being. And this begins to sound a lot like the God described in the Bible. It's not proof that that's the one true God, but it's certainly evidence that some other ideas of what God is like is, are not right. What it does is it says that Christian theism, the God described in the Bible, is to me the most reasonable alternative of atheism, agnosticism, or theism. Because it fits the evidence. It fits the evidence from cosmology. It fits the evidence from human experience. And because of that, out of all these things, it becomes the most viable, the most reasonable, the most probable. And this is one of the reasons why I'm a Christian, because the evidence points to the God described in the Bible. All right, so I want to invite Tim Lasher up, who's going to talk next week about uh, miracles. We'll talk about that. But he's got questions that you guys have set, sent in, and we're going to spend maybe 10 or 15 minutes answering some questions uh, that you've sent in, right? Yep, we've okay. got a couple here. Um, first of all, I do want to say it is... I got to tell you, it is an honor to be sharing the stage with guys like Jeff Harwell and Mike Strauss. And I hope you all understand what a blessing it is to have these guys in your church and willing to teach this. I have uh, bothered him countless times to come teach at my home group and just get out in front of people and hear his message because it's such a difference. It's just so different from what people are used to hearing when they're here things about God and of, of uh, the evidence for Christ. So really, uh, it's, it's just so wonderful to be with this guy. And so I hope you enjoy it. So here's the first question. It's a nice short one. Yeah, I see it written down there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How would you respond to an atheist statement that the existence of morality has its basis in that morality is required for human social structures and human communities to survive? In other words, morality is necessary for humanity to advance and develop for that purpose, not because of a creator God who bestowed his image upon mankind. Yeah, so this is the standard answer to the question of morality, that it developed as an evolutionary byproduct for the species to survive. Well, let me tell you, for the species to survive, I don't have to care about you, right? I got to care about my offspring. There's no reason to go running into a burning house to save someone I don't know. That's not going to help the species survive. It might cause me to not have my offspring survive. I think it, I think it disregards the human experience. It's not about, you know, if really evolutionary developments wants survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest isn't that you survive. It's that the fittest survive. And I shouldn't care about the person who's not so fit. There was a time when humans thought that way. In fact, one of the direct results of uh, Darwin's theory of evolution was trying to manipulate which human should live and which should die. 
Some can argue that some of the Nazi Holocaust is even based on those theories. That, that in fact, for the survival of humanity, we should get rid of the weak. Yet we all know that we ought not to do that. I just think this is the best you can do if you don't believe in God, to try to make it some kind of societal reason. But if you really think about what evolutionary theory teaches, it's not that you all have to survive. It's that I have to survive, and my, a few of my clan has to survive. Maybe we should all be cannibals, and murdering others is okay, but my clan is what matters, right? But we all know that's not right. There is a sense of ought, and it's not what evolutionary theory would teach. It's something quite different. Okay, this one has more to do with the science background. Isn't it contradictory to say the universe couldn't pop into existence, but virtual particles can? Uh, no, that's not contradictory. Um, so virtual particles don't pop into existence from nothing. They pop into existence from the space-time fabric of the universe, which is not nothing. And in fact, that's what's really amazing. If you were to go into deep outer space where you think it's a vacuum and nothing exists, and if you were bored to bore down to the quantum world, you would see this amazing universe of fields and particles that exists despite the universe being a vacuum. In other words, space and time itself are not nothing. And so these virtual particles come into existence not from nothing, but from the fabric of space and time, which the more we learn, the less we can call space-time itself nothing, if that makes sense. Okay, next question is, I believe in the existence of God, but I have many friends who don't. I think they're agnostic. What advice can you give me on how I can make God known to them? Well, I think, you know, we talked about some of that at the beginning. First of all, pray for them. Make that a priority. Second of all, listen to them. Ask them questions. Find out what their needs are, what their felt needs are. Um, the third thing is love them. Um, you will make more headway in drawing someone to Christ by showing them love than by giving them all their answers. We are told to have answers, to reasonable answers. But, but showing people the love of Christ makes a huge difference. I have a friend who's now, um, well, he's my age, so he's old. But when he was a student at Stanford, a professor had just won a Nobel Prize. And he had the audacity to walk into this professor's office who had just won a Nobel Prize like a year before just to say hi, right? You don't do that. So he walked into his office, and he just said, you know, sir, I just wanted to meet you. You won a Nobel Prize. Your life must be really great since then. And the professor, for some unknown reason, is completely honest with this student he has never met. And he says, my life is terrible. Now that I've won the Nobel Prize, all of my colleagues are stabbing me in the back. They're trying to take advantage of me. He said, I have a special needs daughter that nobody cares about. Nobody asks about. Nobody, you know, visits her. And I thought, what does he need to come to know Jesus? Does he need all these intellectual arguments? Or does he need someone who loves and cares about him? Right? If you show people the love of Jesus, it is so attractive. It's so supernatural. I don't have it. Those who know me know that. Right? 
but, but it makes a difference. Why do you follow Christ? Because there's a set of rules that you're afraid to break? Or because God so loved you that the least you could do is love him back? Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, if the story of Christianity is true, it means everything. And if it's not true, it means nothing. And the one thing it can't be is some moderate idea. It's either everything or nothing. If the God of the universe loved you so much that he came and died for you so that you could have a relationship with him, it means everything. And that's what people don't know. That changes lives. Um, and if you can just show people a taste of Christ's love and answer their reasonable questions, um, it makes a huge difference. And listen to them. They're not a project. They're people who need to know God. Right? I don't know. I, I'm not great at this. You know, I'm not great at, at sharing my faith. It's hard. And I'm not great at showing the love of Christ. But I know that those are the things that make a difference in my life. If we are singing a song about the cross, don't look at me. I'll probably be crying. Right? Because that picture of God with nails in his hand hanging on the tree for people who don't deserve it, right? That's huge. That makes a difference in people's lives. Yeah. It's not science. It's not rocket science, right? <laughs> um, we've got a little bit of extra time. If you didn't have a chance to write down a question, does anybody have a question from the audience that just popped into your head you'd like to shout out? <laughs> yeah. Um, it doesn't completely. So this, this, gets, this says that some ideas of God um, are less probable. Ultimately, to come to the Christian God, you've got to come to Christ. So if somebody logically wants to pursue the evidence for God, the next thing I point them to is the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, then what he said is true, and Christianity is true. And if he didn't rise from the dead, as Paul said, then we should be pitied. And so the next, this gives a pointer, the direction to go, but it doesn't give the full story. The full story is given by the person of Christ. Right. Um, Tim, why don't you share a little bit about what you're going to be talking about next week? Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, next week is another question that people have, which is why believe in miracles? You know, the more, uh, the, the more advanced we become in our world, the smaller the globe becomes, I think the more pessimistic and cynical we can get at times. And why should we believe in miracles? We're going to talk and we're going to dig deep into that next week. Uh, we're going to take you all the way from the Immaculate Conception all the way to the 1969 Mets, which I think is the last miracle God did. So, um, not kidding, just kidding. Um, but, it's, it's really interesting, and, and I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the great things about, you know, going through this is we're able to, when, when you have to study this, you sometimes go back and you see things that you haven't looked at in a long time, and you get to see God from a new perspective that you maybe haven't looked at him in that, from that angle in a very long time, and it's just been so wonderful, and so I hope all of y'all can come back. If you've got non-believing friends, bring them. If, 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 if you're a non-believer, feel welcome. If you're a believer and want to strengthen your faith, faith come back, because this, this whole book, I'm glad you asked what we kind of based all of this on, um, it, it, it just builds up to a crescendo, and you can just 
take so much from it and really strengthen your ability to share Christ with others. Because um, for some people, it is a process. Like Mike just said, you know, sometimes it's 30 people that uh, touch somebody, and some people are just reaping, and then at one point, somebody makes that decision. So it's really, really special. And if you all would like to get the book, I'm glad you asked. Uh, we sold out of them. Uh, they are available on Amazon if you want to get that. But there's another book that you have to have, and it is the one that this man wrote. Uh, it is right over there, and they are... How much? $12. $12. It's a bargain at any price. And um, he's here. He'll sign it for you, all that good stuff. So if you want to get that and really learn more and just have that on your shelf, really please do that. Um, thank you all so much for your questions and, and for your attendance tonight. Mike, did you have anything else to add no. before we finish it up? Okay. Well, if I could, I'll just pray us out, and uh, we just uh, welcome everybody to come back next week. Holy Father, we, we're grateful that we can um, call you our God. Uh, we are grateful that you have uh, found your way um, to seeking us out, uh, that we can come to know you better. I just thank you for this evening, for all the people that came. I pray that we can continue to prepare our hearts and minds through prayer um, to understand you better. I thank you for Mike and his witness, uh, his testimony, and, and what he has meant to so many people uh, literally all over the world where he's been able to share this. And uh, our prayer is that we serve you well, and we just thank you for uh, this church um, and for Wildwood opening this time up and uh, for what it can mean in our lives. So uh, we praise you, we love you, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.